On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we're going to start with the Auditor General's report. came out today. Not the specifics. I don't really care about the specifics. I mean, I do. But we're more concerned about why is it that every time there's an auditor's report, no matter who's in office, money is being wasted. Where are the people in public life who are showing concern for our taxpayer dollars? We're also going to be talking about the mafia. A Hamiltonian was just sentenced for a crime, for a series of crimes, and apparently claims to be number two in the Buffalo Mafia. There seems to be an increase in Mafia activity. Are we imagining that, or is that in fact the case? And you'll want to stick around because Creed Bratton, who played Creed Bratton on The Office, joins us. You'll want to listen, if only to hear his story about hanging brain. Don't go anywhere. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The Auditor General's report for Ontario came out today. Bonnie Lissick put out her, I think it's like an 1,800-page report going over with a fine tooth comb, a lot of things in the government. And there are a lot of things to dissect in this report, as there always are. I, I can't remember a time ever that an Auditor General's report came out and the Auditor General said, you know what? Peachy keen, A-plus for everybody. We have not wasted a dime here. It's always seemingly what we saw today. Waste and mismanagement. Waste and mismanagement here and there and everywhere. Uh, One of the big ones was Metrolinks, which, keep in mind, would be in charge of our LRT if it gets built, uh, which was cited as squandering hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars on, well, nothing. Literally nothing. Bad decisions, delays, changes in plans cost 400 and something million dollars. Just poof, gone into the wind. Non-recoverable costs is how they describe it. Uh, also pointed at with wasteful programs, legal aid, OSAP. Remember when Kathleen Wynne said that university and college education was going to be free? Well, guess what? The cost of that is now already up or is about to be up 50% higher than she promised when it was going to be free. And that was already not free. Let me bring in Christine Van Gein, who's the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Christine, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, As I said a moment ago, every time we go into one of these reports, and I don't care what government is in office, what stripe, what political spectrum, whatever, we always hear these stories of mismanagement and waste, and not every agency of the government, but always we find these things. And it does. It, it always drives me nuts because I'm trying to figure out why that is. And let's start with the first one. Why is there seemingly always these examples of egregious mismanagement in government-run programs? Well, because they're spending other people's money. It's a lot. It's really easy to waste other people's money. If it's your own money, you're really careful with it. But this is money that taxpayers give to the government, and so because it doesn't belong to these people, they, they don't face the consequences of spending it recklessly. That's why we always see waste in government, because they it's, it's not their money. But surely, somewhere along the way, there are people who take these, high, especially the high-end government jobs, who aren't wasteful, who really are wanting to be careful with our money. There's got to be those people out there who aren't as reckless as sort of what we're describing. Well, I'd love to meet them if those people exist. <laughs> but I, th- I think it's just the nature of government is that government uh, aims to expand and get larger and claim more and more money and, and, and spend more and more money. And it's sort of the nature of budgets as well. In any l- large organization, you find that if you don't spend the budget, you lose it for the next year. And so um, there aren't a lot of incentives in government to find efficiencies. And so that's the result is that you find a lot of waste. 
it raises an interesting question. And we, we see in the private sector, we see executives who get blasted when they receive large bonuses for doing things. Would there, do you think it would be different if we told the head of government, heads of government agencies, if you can bring in a project on time and under budget and legitimately, not, not in a political money, moving it around accounting kind of way, if you can bring in a project under budget and on time, you will get a bonus for yourself. Do you think it would change things? Yeah, I think incentive pay is a really great thing that governments don't pursue. Um, in all kinds of areas, not just in, in the top level. I think incentive pay at lower levels of government would encourage more productivity and, and give us better services. But um, So why don't we do it then? Sector, there's a lot of public sector opposition to, to that kind of thing because a lot of public sector compensation, uh, in sort of, in other words, union compensation is based on seniority, not on performance. But at the top levels, and again, maybe maybe I'm being a naive optimist or some, you know, I've got my fingers crossed, I don't know, but surely with the enormous, and they are enormous, the salaries that are paid to the people at the very top level, when we fill those jobs, can we not find people to and, and say to them, look, the a, a condition of you remaining employed in this position is to be good with our money. I, I just, I, I fail to see how every government seems to swing and miss on this one. So part of the problem, I think, is that at the top, ultimately, it's political leaders, and political leaders have political incentives. And we actually saw that in the Auditor General's report, specifically with Metrolinx. So there was the, the people who work at Metrolinx and who are, who are on the executive are well compensated, and they use technical planning. What we saw was that the Minister of Transportation, the former Minister of Transportation in the Wynn government, inserted himself into the planning process to have a special go station, a special go station added that was politically important for him and for his community and uh, to his government. And, and he had the city of Toronto do the same thing. And, you know, he can actually, he can do that legislatively. He has the authority to use a legislative process and say, hey, you know, we're going to co-opt this process. But he kind of did it in a sneaky roundabout way and um, and where there was no transparency involved. And the result of a lot of these Metrolink's decisions, those ones were considered separately, but a lot of this, this political meddling has huge costs. In Metrolink's, the, the, the cost consequence of continuing to change the plan is over $400 million. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Christine Van Gein, the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, joins us here on the Scott Radley Show. And just before the break, Christine, you were talking about the politics of this. And I think that's a, and I think everybody does, it thinks it's a huge issue here because in many of these cases, the problem clearly seems to be politics. Metrolink's changing all of its plans for politics. We saw with the hydro plant, it was about politics. The the OSAP, the free, quote, quote, free university and college funding for politics, seemingly to buy votes. But there seems to be no way to stop governments from doing this. Well, that's why we elect new governments. And I think that the Auditor General does a good job of, of pointing all of these things out. Um, the former government didn't take a lot of her advice. Um, she actually goes over at the end of her report in part two what of her previous recommendations were implemented. And I think she said it was about 30% of her recommendations had um, had been accepted. Um, hopefully this time around, because this is a different government, 
Um, and this time, the new government has a bit of a hall pass on this year's Auditor General report. What the Auditor General looked at this year is almost entirely spending that was by the previous government, by the Wynn government. So they, instead of hating today, which the government usually does, the, the Ford government was pretty happy, I think, um, be, because they are not responsible for a lot of the waste that was leading up to this. And However, I, and they're responsible for what happens going forward. Right, right. And and based on history, not necessarily with Doug Ford, but just with every single government, we're going to have a report next year that's going to find waste and mismanagement again. Yeah, we will. And that's why I think they're not going to, they're going to like it this year. They might not like it last year, just because, as I said, it's the nature of government to, uh, to, to dislike this day. Um, it's the nature of government because it's the nature of government to engage in waste and mismanagement. But my hope is that because these are programs that the Auditor General was looking at from the previous government, that this new government will actually take her suggestions seriously mm. this year um, because some of the things that they the, she, she's written about are things that the government, the new government campaigned in opposition to. So changes to the, the OSAP funding I think are are definitely going to be seen because this this free tuition thing that's going to be costing us two billion dollars a year and isn't actually helping low income students um, or there's no evidence that it's helping low income students. I mean, so a program like that just doesn't work. Well, and the real challenge though with all this, with the political side of this, is that if we'll use Doug Ford because he's in office right now. If Doug Ford looks at this Auditor General report and looks at the OSAP situation that seems to be targeting all the wrong people, and says, "You know what? That's two billion dollars that we can cancel and save," he is immediately, or whoever is the premier, is immediately accused of attacking education or attacking the poor or attacking whatever. We know that no government, or very few that I can remember in my life, no government pairs back on their programs. Government only grows. It never shrinks. Well, you know what? I'm a taxpayer in this province, and I feel I felt perpetually under attack for the last 15 years um, by the by the previous government. And, and I'd like to see a government that takes some responsibility and takes the issue of a $14.5 billion deficit seriously. My hope is that the government, the new government... Um, was considering some of these changes to begin with, and they can take this report and use it as um, a rationale or justification for pursuing some changes that are desperately needed. And they can point to this third-party, nonpartisan entity, the Auditor General, and say, you know what? We're taking fiscal responsibility seriously, and we're implementing these recommendations. What I don't get out of all of this is, Every government that's in office knows that it, that every year Bonnie Lissick, and she's pretty thorough. I, I mean, when you do an 1,800-page report, she's being pretty thorough. She is going to come out with this, and she is going to be going over your books with a fine-tooth comb, and she is going to rake you over the coals in front of everybody in the province. Seems to me, and maybe it's just me personally, if I know I'm going to be scrutinized like that, I want to do a good job. I don't want to be embarrassed, but it doesn't seem to have that impact on governments. Well, I don't know if the government, I'm not entirely sure if the government always knows which areas well, well in advance she's going to be auditing. They, they do know when it gets closer to the date because they have to, they respond to her, her recommendations and they participate in the audit. But when she decides, you know, I'm going to audit this area, I don't know if she gives them um, a warning that this is the area I'm going to choose. Regardless, example, though, just to have any any part of government, if I'm working in that area of government, I want to do a good job. I don't want to be embarrassed. And if I could be scrutinized, I want to make sure I'm doing it right. 
Yeah, so I think what happens is that a lot of the bureaucrats who work in these these big buildings around Queen's Park um, and all over the, the province, they don't necessarily think that they're doing a bad job because the biggest rationale for doing things in government is that this is the way it's always been done. We've always done things this way, done done things this way, and they don't necessarily consider that it might be wasteful or that there might be a better way of doing it. So um, that's another big problem with government uh, that that they don't it do, they don't want to make a lot of changes, and that's why one of the reasons why we only see about thirty percent of the recommendations implemented. Christine Van Gein, uh, listen, always like talking to you on days like this, even though every single one of them is always depressing. One of these times, an Auditor General report is going to come out and they're going to say, this government did such an amazing job, Christine is going to have a smile on her face for the next six months. But You know what? They said Darlington isn't as bad as we thought it would be. <laughs> there you go. There is a, sh- a silver lining somewhere in the dark cloud. Christine Van Gein, the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, one thing to note, I got an email from someone saying, how could you possibly suggest that we should reward ministers for being better managers of their money? That's not what I was suggesting. Politicians are paid just fine and their job is to do their job. I'm talking about bureaucrats, pay them a little less, pay the bureaucrats a little less. And then if they meet the targets, they get a bonus. And you want to know something? Bureaucrats who are incentivized to save money and do a good job will do, I believe, will do that good job and ultimately save us money. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not talking about paying politicians extra. It's the workers who, as Christine just said, don't really have any reason to do anything differently. If the worst you get is a slap on the wrist and tomorrow everybody forgets about this report, who cares? Carry on. It's only taxpayers' money. We can always tax people more. It's not my dough. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You probably heard the story. I hope you heard the story. I hope you were paying attention. Earlier this week, a Hamilton pasta, coffee, and hardwood salesman, a guy named Domenico Violi, pleaded guilty to multiple drug charges and was sentenced to eight years in prison. That kind of stuff, I'm sure, happens with regularity in courts all over the place. People are sentenced for stuff. What makes this story unique, what makes this story talkable, why we're discussing it today is because in the court proceedings, it came to light that Mr. Violi may be a mob underboss with the Todaro crime family in Buffalo. And if this is true, this would make him the highest ranking Canadian ever in the American mafia world. Hamilton guy. So I guess if that's true, congratulations. I don't know. What do you say to someone who's the second highest ranking mafia boss? Uh, James Dubrow who is not a high-ranking mafia boss, but he is an award-winning crime writer, and he is a guy who's written about the mob a lot. Joins us. James, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, good evening, Scott. How are you? I'm well. I'm. Here's the thing about this whole story that I'm finding so puzzling, and I want to get into this a bit. It, it seemed for the longest time that... The st- uh, we all know the history of the mob in Hamilton, the history of the mafia in Hamilton. There's a long, legendary history here, and but it, it seemed like over a hundred years, and and yet it seemed like for about the past twenty years or so, it kind of went fallow. We didn't hear much about it. It was kind of quiet. It was just those stories, those dusty stories from the past. And in the past, I don't know, year or two, with with Musitano being assassinated and and another one, and then this one, it seems like something is happening. Is that our imagination or is something new happening? Well, the mob has this amazing ability to survive the mafia. I mean, we said over a hundred years it's been in Hamilton and very active for the most part. 
being active doesn't mean you hear things every day or there's shootings and killings every day. If you're an effective mafia leader, you're quietly bringing in and selling your drugs, uh, working with other crime families in North America and making money. You're not necessarily on the street causing trouble. Uh, as for Dominic Violi and his brother, I mean, they come from such a distinguished mafia pedigree. I mean, his grandfather was Giacomo Lupino, the legendary godfather in the Hamilton Burlington area. Uh, gosh, we had him in connections, the series in organized crime at CBC. We had him, had him in there 40, over 40 years ago. And his father was, uh, the great, uh, Violi, uh, who was the underboss to Catroni and, um, was murdered uh, in the late 70s, 40 years ago he was murdered by Vito Rizzuto's father, Nick Rizzuto. So we're, just, we're talking very distinguished mafia pedigree. I would say that um, in, in, in Dominic and Joe Violi, that the mafia is in their DNA. I mean, they literally grew up in it, and, and that's been in life. Now, in terms of uh, Hamilton and the mob scene, I think what's diminished a lot is the power of the American mob families. Uh, you very, hear very little about the Buffalo mob anymore. It used to be Stefano Magadino. I went to his funeral 40 years ago. He was the boss of the bosses, uh, head of the ruling commission of the mafia, and, and, he, and he was very big. He'd been in Buffalo since the 20s. But that mafia family has, has seen uh, a lot of uh, law enforcement efforts and, and a lot of changes and their their infiltration in the unions is a lot less. Their their national involvement is less, a lot less. I mean, Joe Todaro, the current boss, the son of the old boss, runs a pizza joint, uh, for heaven's sakes. And if it's true that Dominic Violi, remember, we're just going on a wiretap of right. yep. someone who infiltrated, if it's true that he's the underboss of the Banana family, it just shows you how far down the Banana, sorry, the uh, Magadino family, uh, run by Todaro now, it just shows you how down that family has gone that they would have to pick a relatively minor mafioso from Canada. I mean, Dominic's known, but he's not a high-profile street guy, and, and even in Hamilton, I mean, his uh, Lupinos, the Papalias, uh, the Musitanos are a lot more known, uh, but maybe that's going to change. You know, I think maybe part of this is telling us that the Violis are, 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 have been moving to take power you know there's a lot of different calabria mafia families in in the hamilton area and southern ontario um and the musitanos for instance have been under great under the gun literally for the last few years i mean angela was killed last year uh pat has had a few uh, assassination attempts it seems to me that dominic violi and his brother might be making a move they might be behind some of that let's eliminate the musitanos uh, well, you just, you said a moment ago, and it's a, it's a valid point, it's an important point to make, is that the stuff we're talking about is coming from wiretap evidence that was picked up, that was brought out in this trial. It, the, the wiretaps have not been tested in court. We don't know their veracity, but when you see the lineage and then you hear this stuff, uh, I mean, a guy could just be boasting to try and bolster his credibility, but do you tend to lean towards, I believe it, or do you think this is a lot of hot air and it's probably not as... Bigot. He's not as high and mighty in the mafia that you would that he might be saying. Well, it's odd that we do, we didn't know about this until now. I mean, 
I don't know whether he was just boasting. It's the sort of thing you do boast about if it's true. Underboss in, 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 in Buffalo is, is not that major job. I mean, some of the accounts are a little overblown. Uh, Buffalo isn't the major crime family it was. It's certainly not the second most important in the United States. The whole mob in the United States mafia has been really diminished in the last 30 years. It's a shadow of itself, the Bonanno family which the Violis are associated with. Now, they've been associated with that family going back to their dad's day and their uncle's day. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a combination. I mean, they may be, they're certainly associated with the Bonanno and Magadino family. And for heaven's sakes, they were bringing in fentanyl and selling fentanyl and other drugs, heroin, with the Bonanno family, which shows how far down the Bonanno family has come. Old Joe Bonanno wouldn't touch drugs, he said. And they're doing it with the Asian triad groups, the, the big circle boy gangs, you know, which is a nasty group out of China that uh, gets the fentanyl from China where it's legal still to make it and brings it through and distributes it through gangs in New York and the United States. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. James Dubrow, author, crime writer, award-winning crime writer, guy who has watched and observed the mob for years, joins us. James, you were talking about Buffalo. This this had been, from what I understand, uh, a, a crime area, a mafia area that had been, again, kind of underground, understated, laying low for a number of years, and now it may be back to life, if you want to call it that. It's close to here. It's close to us here. It possibly involves, it sounds like it involves a guy from Hamilton. Does this lead to... Are we close enough that this leads to more activity, to turf wars, to those kind of things, or especially around here? Uh, well, there are turf wars on, ongoing without Buffalo. We have a lot of uh, turf wars going in, inside the Calabrian Mafia, let alone without the American Mafia involved, and they may be all interconnected anyway, as we see. But uh, there's been, you know, as you know, Angela Musitano was, was murdered in front of his house. Uh, Pat Musitano's had his car blown up and his house attacked. Uh, other people have been killed in the area. There's a uh, battle between some of the Calabrian and Drangheta, some of the more recent immigrants from Calabria and Italy, who are mob bosses, and then some of the new mob bosses, and then the older ones. And of course, Violi comes back to being the older one, along with Musitano. But obviously, there's some problem there between Musitano and Violi, and they go back together since uh, at least the 60s. Um, I think one of the things this indicates also is that southern Ontario, and certainly Montreal, have become more significant than anything going on in Buffalo in the mafia world. It's been very, very quiet in Buffalo, as you say. Their, their infiltration of the unions and their and their big money tickets have are, are been gone since a lot of successful prosecutions. Um, but in terms of mob wars, <laughs> go back 100 years, all of southern Ontario and western New York 100 years ago was in, involved in a big mafia turf war. It, it comes with the territory, you know. Then it was about bootlegging. Now it's about drugs. Police are obviously still keeping tabs on this because we have this arrest and this conviction, so we know that police are involved. But the fact that until very recently there weren't the slayings, there weren't the hits, there weren't all these things, do we have any reason to believe police have really scaled back their efforts with the mob? Well, they they have in the Hamilton area. Remember uh, when I did some books in the 80s and 90s, they had the Joint Forces Unit, which was a... Uh, RCMP, OPP, and Hamilton Police and other police departments working together on big mob cases, which generally targeted the Latinos, 
the Musitanos, the Papalias, and a few other crime families. Now they don't really have that. Uh, it's really any mob. And there have been a lot less. Yes, I think there has been a money problem because there have been a lot less federal prosecutions uh, of, of mafia uh, led by the RCMP. They actually have admitted that they put less money into their organized crime thing now since they're involved in all these terrorism cases and, you know, lone, uh, lone uh, assassins and terrorists operating in Canada takes a lot of time and energy of, of the RCMP, and now they're involved in, of course, uh, uh, kitty porn investigations as well. So, yeah, it has taken a back seat. Now, one of the things that gives it a higher profile is the fact that a major mafia guy uh, and, 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 and in the United States and Canada are involved in the fentanyl trade. I mean, that's going where the money is, you know, and it's, uh, that trade, of course, has killed a lot of people, the drug, mm-hmm. so... It gives it a much higher profile. It makes it a lot more sinister suddenly. You know, when they were just doing cocaine, which is primarily what they've done in, in marijuana and corrupting unions and the odd extortion. Uh, well, uh, James, with the government now involved in marijuana, if you want to be a mob dealer and get involved with marijuana, the full force of the federal government will be coming down on you. we got to get those tax dollars. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> you could actually do it legally. I mean, I've, yeah, I, know, I know, I know. I've heard intelligence already that certain organized crime families are laundering their money through uh, through uh, uh, legal marijuana shops outside of Ontario and soon inside Ontario. Well, that wouldn't be all that surprising. We only have a couple, no. a minute or so left here. The, the story, part of the story, one of the things that was written in the various versions of the story was that he was caught, that this thing came to light thanks in part to an informant. Right. D- does Do things work like they do in Hollywood? This informant, whoever he or she may be, probably he, uh, he, he would be a marked man at this point, correct? Well, he should be. <laughs> you know, you don't rat out a, a family like that. Yeah, I'm obviously uh, a rat. There's no good to anyone, as Paul Volpe said famously in Connections uh, Alive. So, yeah, he's a marked man. And would the would a... Typically, in a case like this, would they want, if they were able to find who this was, would they want to do something publicly or would it be quietly? Do they want to send a message or do they want to do it very quietly and just have this person disappear if they discover who he is? Well, it could be done either way, but, you know, probably quietly. I mean, people will get the message. The underworld knows what's going on. You know, people in the underworld, they, they work together. They, they know if someone disappears. They probably know who, certainly who this infiltrator is. The question is, how much power does Dominic Violian's associates have to do anything? He's, he's going to be in jail for five or six years at least. Um, I'm not so sure the Bonanno family is involved here as well as the Magadino family, but I'm not so sure they have even have the power to arrange hits in, in, in Ontario uh, at this point. You know, that's, that's a real question. It's not that easy. Sorry, it's not that hard. It's not that expensive, even. Um, but you would expect that that something would happen. For instance, no one has. There's been no known retaliation for the murder of Angela Musitano. Um, but should, we, yeah, but, who knows? Uh, James, well, we don't know. But the thing is, it could show that that Pat is weak. And remember, Pat Musitano back in a few years ago took on a number of other gangsters, including Papalia, Valero. He had two of them killed. In, a, in our area, and he was going to go after Lupinos. Lupino, uh, Lupinos are cousins 
of Violi, and he works with Rocco Lapina, who's another Hamilton-based gang boss with a long uh, pedigree. So, you know, I think it probably has, you know, where, where the revenge might be coming is against Musitano. James, I got uh, sadly I got to jump in because we're flush out of time. But I really, uh, I really love having you on, and thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you. Take uh, care, Scott. James Dubrow, award-winning crime writer, and he's written a lot. You, you know, you can tell he knows his stuff. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. December 18, two weeks from yesterday, my next guest is going to be in town here in Hamilton performing his music and comedy show at Carmen's up on the mountain. You know him from the show that that theme song just came from, from The Office, where he played a character named Creed Bratton, of course, which just happens to be his actual name, Creed Bratton. Welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this tonight. Ah, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to coming up there and playing for the folks. Well, I, you know, this is perfect timing, too, because I see in the theaters that Creed 2 just opened up, which I understand is Sylvester Stallone's, the second part of his homage to you on the screen. So that, that's great timing. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they asked me to, to cut get there and spar with, with Sly. <laughs> and uh, and I, I told him I was 75 now, but I didn't, you know, I didn't want to embarrass the guy. You know, so. I, I am disappointed, though, I, you uh, couldn't have found your way into this movie, because you would have found, there would have been something in there that you could have done. Well, there was a lot of period of time with that band. It was a band creed, and people just, you know, kept just <laughs> finding the joke there. And I said, I've heard the joke. Yes, I know there's a band called Creed. Are you going to sing whatever, whatever that song, that big hit song they had? They would, they would yell at me in my shows, you know, and they, it, was, it was humorous. <laughs> well, most people obviously know you from The Office, but you bring up a band, Creed. Just before we get into The Office stuff, because we're obviously going to get there, uh, I did not realize, I should have, that you were a musician long before you were an actor, long before you were really well-known with that show, uh, and you've had a lot of success with this. I did not know that. Does everybody know when you tell them your background that that was where you got your start? No, uh, the grassroots, yeah, we had... Uh, in the- 67, 68, 69, you know, 70, we had, a, we had a lot of hits. Yeah. And, uh, we were like one of the folk rock, rock people in Los Angeles and around. We toured everywhere. Uh, but Greg Daniels used my full name on the show. He, Phyllis, Oscar, and Angela, he used their first names. But uh, he used my full He was trying to work in the, my connection with the, the grassroots, you know, for some reason. Well, and let me. We, did, we, we had a deleted scene uh, where I actually play guitar. Let me, if I can, because most people listening, they may not even realize they know your band. Let me just play a little taste of one of your biggest hits that everybody's going to know. Here we go. All right. Yeah, that that is Creed Bratton playing guitar right there. A guitar, an awesome guitar solo comes up shortly after we cut it off there. Uh, but yeah, you you did have a successful music career long before this show ever came along. Yes, absolutely. I was in my uh, out of college. I went off to Europe uh, right out of college, and I was over there for two and a half years. I joined a folk trio, played all over Europe, Africa, Middle East, even up into. Poland and Romania and Bulgaria <laughs> at the time, you know, everywhere. And uh, I met a guy named Warren Etner at an Israeli folk festival in Israel. And he liked my guitar playing. And I called him when I got to L.A. And we, in one week, we were playing in a, in a club in this band called the 13th Floor. 
and a year later we became the grassroots. So it was it was a it happened real fast for us. That was back in the six, late sixties. How and we're jumping way ahead, but how do yeah, you that then? Was, that was sixty six. Yeah. How do you end up as an actor? How do you end up on the Office? Well, I uh, was uh, a drama major in college, and that was my that was I was always planning to be an actor. I was always knew I was good at it. It was something that I loved making people laugh. So guitar playing and music was just something I did. That was almost like a side. Uh, you know, even though I still perform and enjoy it immensely, you know, I was I made my money, my big money from uh, from acting, of course. I was working on Bernie Mac, the show Bernie Mac, and the director came on, Ken Quapis, and I found out through the first AD that he was going to uh, be the director for the first six episodes of The Office, an American Workplace. And I now that Ricky Gervais English show was one of my favorite things to watch. So I lobbied. I talked to him and and I got myself in the mix, got myself in the room, and then I wrote a character out and gave it, submitted it to them, shot it, shot about an hour's worth of material, ad-libbed a bunch of stuff, gave it to Greg Daniels, and they said, well, you're pretty funny. And next, there you go, and that's the rest is history, as they say. How close to the character that you ultimately played was what you developed to do for that audition? Um, well, he was, he was psychic, the character was, but he did <laughs> also have the... Uh, the uh, the drug problems and he uh, <laughs> I amped him I amped my natural timing and my natural energy up uh, obviously because you'd, you'd be worn out playing that guy you know the free character uh, but people so when they're interviewing me sometimes where I'm on a film set they say you don't seem like that character too much I say well I'm an actor you know so it's there, but there's obviously a little bit of me in every. Every actor, there's a little bit of them in the characters. You can't get away from that. That said, though, the way it is. that said, very few actors play a role, especially on a series that is their actual name, which tends to blur the lines, I'm guessing, and makes it a little bit of a mystery about oh, where, yeah. where Creed Bratton begins and where Creed Bratton ends. Where's the character and where's the person? You, you must have had questions about that forever. Yeah, and I'm not about to answer any of that stuff. I think, <laughs> I, I think being an... an, an an enigma, you know, a mystery is is a good thing for for, for someone's career, for sure. Well, I, I hope you're going to answer some because I did have a few that I wanted to ask you. You can you can defer if you don't want to, but some of these things that All I right. was thinking about today. Okay. Have you ever been in a cult as a leader or a follower? In a cult, I uh, I was counseled. I, I, I counseled some cults because you know, <laughs> they knew I had instincts for it yeah but i never never joined because i knew it was a, a ruse yeah do you actually speak mandarin of course i speak many <laughs> many languages yes uh have you ever i love this one and I, I i had to listen to this one several times to remind myself of the phrase you use have you ever hanged brain <laughs> uh to you know, yeah expose myself i believe Yes, I did actually on the on the uh, stage. This is a true story too. On the stage of the Fillmore, we were playing with Janis Joplin and Big Brother, and I had dropped acid before the show, and I didn't know how powerful it was. I'd never taken it before, and in the middle of my solo, "Live for Today," everything started moving and dis- disappearing and melting, and my guitar turned into rubber. I hear people going, "Poor." <laughs> Boy, and, and I literally looked up at the speakers, and I saw the notes I was playing on the guitar coming out on staff paper. They <laughs> fell to the ground and broke, and everybody, I don't remember this, but everybody told me that I got down on my knees, 
and I was trying to sweep up these broken notes and put them back onto the staff paper. I couldn't play. And long story short, yes, I didn't know what to do, so I dropped my uh, I dropped my pants and you know let old blue gave, gave him an airing as, as it were. <laughs> All right. Do you, in fact, have four toes on one foot? Yes, yes. That was an unfortunate clog dancing accident in Denmark, drinking a little Jägermeister. And uh, some some big, big guy, a big lumberjack guy uh, in clogs, stepped on my toe and crushed one toe. Seriously? Like like I said to the character, yeah, like I said, the the hair, I've got very hairy feet, so it kind of covered up the hole, so it's not so bad. Have you ever gone by the name of William Charles Schneider? Yes, in my youth I was, yes. So when in that scene in the office, and there's one part when it was the, the episode where Michael Scott declares bankruptcy, which was an absolutely hilarious scene, one of the great ones of all time, you do a, a, an interview thing and you say, Creed Bratton never declares bankruptcy. You say, if it always, I can't remember what the line was, but you had a passport yeah, with that other name. That's your real name. That's your original name. That's it. That's exactly my real wow. name. Wow. Yeah. Have you ever? Or and then do- I, of course, that I met the I met a guy, Creed Bratton, which I thought was a great name, and I killed him and took his name <laughs> and, his, and his identity. But I really kind of try to keep that quiet as much as possible. You know, it's I, I don't think there's ever a uh, you know there's a lot there's what's what's, a, there's, what's, a, what's the word when you uh, things they, they can't come after you anymore because oh, statute of limitations, yeah, statute of limitations has gone by. Yeah, Correct, correct. Yes, gone by. Well, not in this case. Murder, I don't think it ever goes. Maybe not. Uh, one other one. And I, we, didn't have this, we didn't have this conversation. No, of course. No, no. We're, no one's listening, so it's okay. Uh, yeah, and, and the I one know. other one that I was told by everybody I had to ask you today, do you eat mung beans? I do. I grow them myself. I'm growing some right now in my, in my kitchen right now. Do you have and a, not, they, they really don't smell. They really don't smell that bad. They don't they smell don't. like old man. No, they don't smell like death. <laughs> do you have I a favorite like do you have a favorite creed line there were so many great non sequiturs and bizarre lines and everything else do you have uh, one that stands out uh, there's so many you know which one's pam someone they could suit but i think i think scott my favorite is in the 60s i made love to many many women often outdoors in the mud and the rain it's possible a man slipped in There'd be no way of knowing. <laughs> oh, there were so many great lines. And, and so, did, I mean, there were so many. Did you have a hard time? Are you a guy who can keep a straight face easily? Because so many of your lines, I would have found it impossible to deliver them because they were just so bizarre and so hilarious. No, I had no problem delivering my lines. Uh, but when, when in the beginning, when Steve Carell would come in there in, a, in like a fat suit or as prison, you know, prisoner Mike or whatever. <laughs> and I had, we had to, we were just, we lost it. We lost it. We were, I was biting the inside of my mouth. I had bloody, I went, had bloody cheeks inside my mouth from biting the side of my mouth. So I wouldn't laugh. Now the only guy that wouldn't break was Oscar. He was amazing. Oscar is just a, it, he just, he just doesn't break. It's amazing. So these episodes, which are generally about 22 minutes, when then you add the commercials, they get to half an hour. How long would they take to do one? If everyone's cracking up all the time, uh, twelve to fourteen hours a week, uh, five days a week. Wow, sometimes six. A lot of work. 
it is a lot of work. Uh, it, it obviously paid off because uh, yep. it has worked out for you. December 18, as I say, uh, you are coming up here. Tell me about the live show. There are people who are thinking, what would Creed Bratton do in a live show? Walk me through what a live Creed Bratton show is all about. Well, I'm very insecure, Scott, <laughs> uh, and, and shy. Actually, people don't I bet. Me. So I will come out, you know, very demurely, you know, with kind of keeping my eyes down. I come to the microphone. I might strum a little bit on the guitar or say part of a joke. And then I'll run off the stage and peek out and see what the reaction is. And if I look like they're, they're slightly <laughs> bewildered, of course, and they're confused, and that's just how I like them. Then I'll go out and I'll do a little more and I'll run off the stage again. So it takes me a 15 to 20 minutes to actually get out there fully and start entertaining. Because I got to trust. I have to trust my audience or I won't give them everything. That's kind of what they can expect. Well, I mean, honestly, Creed, who, or, I, or I could be lying. Who shows up at work and starts working right away? Everyone, you, know, you got to work into it. You got to have a coffee. You got to talk exactly. to your friends. You know, yeah, no yeah, one starts right away. Segways, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Is it cool with you that when you do these shows, and I've watched a little bit of some of them online, obviously people want to see you talk and tell stories and things about the office as part of the show. Is it cool with but, you that that which becomes I, which I do, which I do, which, I which no you do, problem, of course, I be there. I wouldn't be there getting to sing my original songs. By the way, I'm I'm working now in the studio on my eighth solo album. Wow. My last album uh, got a great review in the LA Times. It's called While the Young Punks Dance. You can get that on Spotify or iTunes or Amazon. And it's a really good album. And people don't understand. They think they're just going to see Creed from the office just doing, I don't know what they think, <laughs> talking heads for, for, for an hour and a half. <laughs> but no... Uh, they'll get stories. Of course, they'll get stories because that's part of the deal. But they will hear some you know, really, really cool songs too. It does sound, though, that you do embrace that part of your career, that part of you that is never going to be able to be separated from the office. No, I mean, I obviously want to uh, have uh, be accepted as a musician, but I, I'd be silly for me to ever completely try to separate, wean myself off of that because I'm there because I was on the office. You know, and but more and more people start shouting out songs and more people comment on the music. So that that's gratifying, you know, it is uh, it is December 18th. It is going to be a lot of fun. It yep. is up at Carmen's. Uh, can't wait to see it. Thank you so much for taking the well, time to do this there. today. I, my pleasure, Scott. Say out of Ben for me, everybody. And thank you very much. And I'll see you. Hope you hope to see everybody at the show. Thanks very much, Creed. That is Creed Bratton from The Office. You know him. You've watched him on that show forever. Um, One of the great characters because, and I say this as a term of endearment, one of the most bizarre, weird, unpredictable characters on TV in recent years. The, The question about where does Creed end and Creed begin, he did a fantastic job of blending those. By the way, a couple other things that I want to tell you about this uh, in the next few days stick around because we will have two pairs of tickets to give away as a prize sometime in the next few days before December 18 here on the show you can win a chance to go to that dinner I am told that pretty much everybody there will have an opportunity to meet him to say hi maybe get a picture whatever else so stick around here on the Scott Radley show those tickets will be available we will be giving out two pairs thanks to the folks at Carmen's who have provided those and one other thing that you need to know about this dinner which I just thought was really funny and and again golf clap to the folks at Carmen's who came up with this one the entire menu is based on office gags 
not like your office, the office, the show. The um, the for there will be fettuccine by Alfredo for the cure, which could only have been better if it was called Michael Scott's Dunder Mifflin Scranton Meredith Palmer Memorial Celebrity Rabies Awareness Pro Am Fun Run Race for the Cure Fettuccine Alfredo or something along those lines. But the there will be Fettuccine Alfredo for the Cure. <laughs> there will be a um, chicken breast, a, a, a George Foreman grilled chicken breast for when Michael Scott put his foot in the George Foreman grill. Shroot beet farm salad, <laughs> which is awesome. Awesome blossom for dessert. And a bunch of other drinks that are tied to the show. It is all very much fun. And if you can go online, you can go online. There are videos on YouTube of Creed Bratton doing his show. It is, well, I don't know if you can know what to expect, but it is kind of what you would expect. It's a little out there, but it will be a lot of fun. Again, uh, we will have two pairs of tickets to give away here on the Scott Radley Show. You can also buy Go on to the Carmen's website if you want to go to it, December 18. If you want to attend that show, give a call. You can buy the tickets. You can go to see that one. Appreciate Creed coming on today, December 18. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.